TBA 21 Academy Radio. We humans want a sea tenderly caressing the shores, a sea whose bright, deep blue soothes sorrows and anger, a sea safe to swim in, a sea where cadavers and waste disappear, a sea of pristine predators who leave us alone, a sea whose delicacies joyfully die in our arms, a sea free of stings, a sea whose waves carry us wherever we'd like to go, a sea that lets us breathe over and under water, a sea that warms us and absorbs our heat, a sea of creatures to talk to, a sea of singing and dancing and falling in love, not falling, a sea of silence, a sea that teaches immortality and peace, a sea that forgives and forgets, a sea that is all gentle touch. But what are the wants of the sea? What are the wants of the sea? Welcome to Ocean Wants, a series of 10 podcasts that playfully explores how non-humans could like our planet to be. Conceived and hosted by Ingo Nierman, Ocean Wands was commissioned to celebrate TBA 21 Academy's 10th anniversary. Episode 9, Deep Frontier, featuring Diva Amen. We can see stars thousands of light years away with our naked eye. About life in the deep sea, we started to know only 200 years ago, and we still know very little. How do we have to reinvent ourselves to serve the needs of the deep sea and tame endeavors to exploit its habitats? I'm Ingo Niermann, a speculative writer, most recently of the book Mare Amoris. And today I'm talking to Diva Amen, a marine biologist focused on the deep ocean. She is also a founder and director of Species, an NGO dedicated to marine science, education and advocacy in Trinidad and Tobago. She speaks from her family home in Trinidad. So my name is Diva Amon and I'm a marine biologist that focuses on the poorly known um, habitats and life in the deep ocean. You're from Trinidad? Yeah. So I assume that you grew up in the very presence of the ocean. Exactly. So yes, I'm from Trinidad and Tobago and that means that You know, most of my weekends were spent um, on or by the sea. I did a lot of um, sailing, a lot of like rock pooling, um, a lot of snorkeling, you know, any opportunity really to be by the ocean. I, I just used to absolutely love it. What did you love about uh, the ocean? When I was younger, when I was a child, it was definitely the life in the ocean. I just love seeing all of these different creatures. Like a lot of my earliest memories are of sea creatures. So I remember seeing these purple and orange starfish on the rocks um, by this place that we used to go to when I was little. But I think now there's this different element of the ocean that you could go back to the same spot the next day 
and you might see something completely different. You really never do know what you're going to see. It's so enigmatic. That opportunity to like immerse yourself in the ocean is really almost like healing in my mind. Like if I don't go into the ocean for months and months and months on end, I actually like crave it. Like I start to feel really sad and upset. For me, it's almost like a second home now. I love that it changes, that it can be comforting one minute and healing. And then the next minute, it can be totally destructive or dangerous. On Trinidad, is it common to swim? Um, I think not as many as you'd think. Um, given we are an island surrounded by the ocean, or many islands, I should say, surrounded by the ocean. And um, given how much we depend on the ocean, um, there actually are not that many people who can swim. I think that's probably for a lot of different reasons. Everything from, you know, the roots of many people who do live here now and, and the colonial history that existed once upon a time. Um, to also just, you know, in terms of like access to the ocean, the Pacific is very different to the Caribbean in that um, many indigenous people and the original people who were in the Pacific are still there. Um, whereas that is not the case for most of the Caribbean. Most of um, the indigenous people were, of course, killed during um, colonization by Europeans. And then, of course, then, you know, you had Africans brought over as part of the slave trade, then Indians brought over during indentureship. And so really the people who have ended up in the Caribbean are largely not those who began here. Um, and I think that has resulted in this sort of systemic lack of, of comfort with the sea. In Europe, even people who live at the coast, who fish, mm -hmm. um, who go out with their boats, they often weren't able to swim. Really? Until recently. Hmm. I'm surprised to hear that, to be honest. And I think but it is quite similar here as well. I mean, we do have a lot of artisanal fishers here in Trinidad and Tobago and that rely on the ocean um, for their livelihoods. Many of them also cannot swim. So your basic fascination with the ocean then brought you to studying marine biology? Yeah. You know, in, in Trinidad and Tobago, it's kind of thought of that you either become a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer. Um, and I remember when I was getting ready to you know, choose what I wanted to study at university. And um, I was like, yeah, well, I'd like to do medicine. Um, and then my parents were like, mm, why don't you think about something that you really love and do that? And I think I'm very lucky in that very few parents, I think, would say that. Um, and yeah, I thought about what I loved and just the ocean and all of the life within it. You know, having that ability to study the ocean and really answer a lot of questions that haven't been answered yet um, and then use those answers to hopefully be able to protect and conserve and, and effectively manage more of it um, was just the way that I thought I wanted to go and no regrets. How were you drawn into the deep sea? As I said, I was always by the ocean and a lot of the time was actually spent sailing. Um, like we sailed all around the Caribbean. Um, and that meant, of course, crossing some quite deep water. And I always remembered as a kid, like, looking down into the ocean and of course you can't see the sea floor right once you get too deep 
and just wondering what was down there and really almost not just wondering, but like wishing that I could just pull away like all of that water, like just get it all to evaporate for a second. Or if I had like a special, I don't know, camera or something that I could send down into the ocean and see what was living there. But that was kind of where the fascination with the deep sea stopped. And it wasn't until I went to university um, in my final year of my um, degree. So it was my master's year. I took a deep sea biology course. And that was kind of when, you know, things really sort of opened up, I guess, for me. And I was exposed to all of these these things that I had never really heard of. Um, and there was a point in the class where the lecturer, the professor was, you know, explaining how little of the deep sea has been explored. And we often hear, you know, it's about 1% of the deep ocean has ever been explored, but actually it depends what you mean by explored. We have full maps of the ocean, but it just depends what resolution you're talking about. But if we're talking about, you know, how much of the ocean has actually been seen by human eyes or by camera, then it actually drops to way, way, way below 1%. Like we're talking like 0.000 like type thing, 1%. And it really sort of struck me that, you know, we were talking about our own planet, the planet that we live on. And yet the largest habitat, the largest ecosystem, sorry, on the entire planet, the deep sea, had been explored so little. Like for most of it, we wouldn't even be able to answer that like fundamental question of like just what lives there you know what is there in that moment was like this is something I think I'd like to do I'd like to be one of those people who is able to go and see what is there and then not just go and see what's there but be able to answer questions about those places and the life that lives there. I was told at school that the world is pretty much discovered yeah there might be some yep tribe here or there that you know yep. <laughs> that is exactly. still pretty untouched but that's it and of course when you read about the ocean it's mind-blowing these uh, estimates that maybe only I don't know if I'm correct like one-tenth of all complex marine species are discovered yet and then I wonder but how do we even know that it's one-tenth when we discovered so little Yeah. So, I mean, I'm exactly the same as you, Ingo. Like growing up, that was absolutely what was taught. You know, we have discovered everything and um, we've essentially conquered the world, I think, is the sort of narrative that we're told. And I mean, there's a lot of issues with that. Like, I don't think the world is one to be conquered necessarily. But beyond that, you know, that's totally wrong. So little of the ocean has been explored. I think we tend to say about a third of the species in the oceans have been discovered. Um, so a little more. Um, but that still means that like 70% of all the complex life in the ocean still hasn't been discovered, right? And I mean, when I tell friends, um, family, you know, that On every single research cruise that we go on, where we're exploring and studying the deep sea, we find new species, like every single one. And on some of them, like 90% or more of the species that we're seeing are new. 
But how do we even know that one third is discovered? When, how can you estimate that? Colleagues have done various modeling studies where you can look at like the rate at which um, species have been discovered. Um, and then from that, you can kind of project basically what the estimate is. Um, so it's thought that there are around a million complex species in the ocean, roughly between about 800,000 and a million. I don't remember where I got this, but I read an estimate of 2.2 million complex marine species. Yeah, so there were two papers that came out. That first one was the 2.2 million one. And then a second one came out after that that actually sort of revised those estimates down and made them a bit more conservative. And then it was a million. Are you specialized in something? Or when you are a deep sea marine biologist, you're still very much a generalist? <laughs> so I definitely think I am a generalist, but um, I tend to work on the large animal. And large is very relative here. Um, anything that's over about a centimeter in size. Um, and we use that cutoff because it means that if we're using some type of deep sea equipment, whether it is a submersible that you go in or a remotely operated vehicle, which is the robots that we send down, they can take pictures of the seafloor to see what life is there. And one centimeter tends to be the size that we can see, the, the, recognize the animal in and above. I mean, we've seen this already, right? Deep sea exploration has been happening for like a hundred years, like in earnest, more. And we've gone from dragging, you know, trawl nets along the seafloor to just see what we could drag up to now using extremely precise and high-tech equipment. So I can only imagine what's going to be, you know, to come in the next 20, 30, 50 years But going below a centimeter, you get into different size classes of fauna. So there's the megafauna, which is a centimeter and above. And then below that, smaller than that, you've got the macrofauna and then the myofauna, which are like nematodes. And then below that are like foram foraminifera, which are these really weird category of animals. And then you get into the microbes, for instance. Um, and I'm certainly not like, you know, against studying anything else, but my heart is where the larger animals are. Are you specialized in certain areas of the deep sea? Yeah, so I definitely think I am somewhat of a generalist. I tend to study, because again, a lot of the work in the deep sea is actually just going there for the first time and cataloging what is there and trying to understand how it works. Um, it means that I work across a lot of different habitats and I tend to try to study that entire community and catalog what's there um, and then work out why it's that way um, but there are a couple that I tend to be a little bit better at knowing than others and so that's things like um, whale falls and wood falls so what happens when a dead whale or a tree sinks down into the deep sea doesn't sound like a very common thing but it is And these dead carcasses transform into this, like, you know, just oasis of life. Um, then there are a couple others. I work on abyssal plains, which are between four and six kilometers depth in the world's oceans. And it's 
the relatively flat sedimented area of the seafloor, um, seamounts, which are mountains under the sea, um, hydrothermal vents. They're like geothermal springs under the water, if you will. And um, they have lots of chemical rich hot fluid coming out of them, like a volcano gushing out of them. And that chemical rich fluid powers entirely different, you know, unique ecosystems that don't exist on land. Um, and then similar to hydrothermal vents, I also work on methane seeps, which are areas where this chemical rich fluid, but but much cooler, just seeps out of the seafloor and again powers these really weird ecosystems. There are actually animals in the deep sea. They have bacteria within them or on their bodies that are able to take these chemicals and then either the animal will be able to eat the bacteria off of its body, like the Yeti crab, for instance, or actually in some tube worms, they're just within the animal and they just are able to convert, you know, create food that then the animal, of course, doesn't actually even have to eat because it's just within its body anyway. So with methane seeps and at hydrothermal vents, they're often called these like, yeah, islands of life in the deep sea, oases of life, just because there's so much of that methane and hydrogen sulfide um, that actually there's lots and lots of life, lots and lots of animals, lots of big animals, because they don't have this shortage of food that exists elsewhere in the deep sea where they rely on this marine snow. And what that is, is like, you know, all of the plankton that are in the surface layers and all of the little fish and all the little animals, um, when they die, um, they sink down into the deep sea. And it does actually look like snow, this white sort of falling, these white falling particles. And that's what forms the majority of food. But there's just really not that much to go around. As I understand, life in the deep sea is kind of, like from our understanding, slowed down um, because of the high pressure and the low temperatures. Yeah, exactly. When you think about the pressures that these animals have to cope with, it's like, you know, for every 10 meters that you go down in the ocean, you gain the equivalent of the pressure that we feel. So one atmosphere of pressure. And so if you were to go down just 100 meters, you would be feeling 10 times the amount of pressure that we're feeling right now. And, and of course, that's still pretty shallow, right? So the average depth of the ocean is just under 4,000 meters. And so at that depth, animals are feeling 400 times the pressure that we are feeling. And then when you get down to like the deepest point on the planet where there still is life, that's like 1,100 times the pressure that we are feeling. Um, and then when you combine that with temperatures that are around three or four degrees Celsius, and in some parts of the deep sea, there's very little oxygen. It's mind boggling to think about. How does it work? I'm not an expert in this, but I think there are a couple different ways that animals have evolved to be able to cope. For instance, let's start with fish, you know, animals that have backbones. So we know that fish can get down to about 8,000, but we know that there's a lot of chemicals that help them to do that. But then another adaptation that fish have is that many fish that we're accustomed to, they have something called a swim bladder, and that helps them with their buoyancy. And it's usually full of air. And um, 
fish in the deep sea have lots of different variations of it. Um, but most of the life in the deep sea is actually not a vertebrate. So no backbone, they're invertebrates. And um, a lot of life in the deep sea is pretty jelly-like. You know, you've got sea cucumbers, um, a lot of the tissue on corals. Um, a lot of life is when you bring it up, we realize is largely composed of water. Um, and so, of course, being as close in consistency to the environment that you're living in makes it a bit easier, right? So it's essentially like trying to be water in water. Creatures of the deep sea, they look so tender, so delicate. Exactly. And that's because they are, right? I mean, many of them are. We have coral in the deep sea that we know lives for over 4,000 years that we have sponges in the deep sea that we now know lives for over 11,000 years. There's coral that is so fragile. It's like bone china. If you were to touch it, it literally just almost shatters. Um, there's other animals that, you know, the moment you make them a couple degrees warmer than they're accustomed to, they essentially just kind of like melt. I mean, really, that's one of the key things about the deep sea is that it is fragile. Yeah, everything looks a bit more delicate, humble when you compare the corals of the deep sea and the warm water corals. Yeah, so the high pressures, the low temperatures, but also in most of the deep sea, there really isn't a lot of food. So a lot of animals in the deep sea really conserve the energy. So not only do they move slowly, but They also grow at a really slow rate and it also takes them a long time to become sexually mature and they also don't reproduce very often. And so all of those factors combined means that, you know, a lot of deep sea life really struggles with change. If a population is impacted, it can't reproduce quickly to make back its numbers. How does this influence your research You have to observe these creatures over a long period of time to understand them. That's a really great question. Um, and I think that's one of the real shortcomings of doing deep sea research. Um, it's something that's being tackled very slowly. But thus far, our technology hasn't really allowed us to be able to make these long-term observations. As you say, you know, you do need to be able to study these habitats over decades, if not centuries, to be able to understand the natural rhythms that occur. Now there are some deep sea observatories, which means that there are cameras down there permanently that um, have been running for several years. And it allows you to really get that look at, at behavior um, and those long-term variations in natural cycles. But largely, I mean, when we go out to do, a, for instance, a deep-sea research cruise, we are out there for like four to six weeks, and we will stay in one spot for, at most, I mean, 24 hours, 48 hours, at most, and not one spot, like that will be on one seamount, for instance. Because we're so limited on time, because deep sea research is so expensive, it means that we just we don't get the chance to to do what we can on land or in shallow waters where we can just sit 
and observe. But how you do you understand anything with this like short period of time? You see a new animal and how do you figure out its role in the habitat, for instance, of a whale fall? I mean, of course, you know, our knowledge is growing. We are able to sometimes like sample these animals um, and then we can take them back to the lab and look at how they look and also their DNA and we can work out like what they're related to for instance we can also analyze their tissues to work out what their food source might be for a very 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 small percentage of deep sea animals we can analyze them to see how old they are but that's I mean that's been done for hardly any animals And, you know, often some of the coolest discoveries are just made by chance. You just happen upon, like, this lobster eating this worm, right? And you're able to see how that's happening. When you have a camera permanently installed mm -hmm. at the seabed or deep in the sea, how is this footage analyzed uh, with the use of machine learning or is it really going through all the footage, like sometimes maybe it was fast forward. How do you do this? It's not just with cabled observatories, for instance, but most of the deep sea research cruises that I've participated in. I mean, we come back from sea and it's like, you know, weeks of footage, right? And um, currently you do just have to sit through it and analyze it, which means replaying it however many times and taking days, if not weeks, if not months of your life to look through this footage. Um, and I mean, if you have a, a, la a team in your lab, etc., of course, you can do things more quickly. Or if you're looking for something specific, you can fast forward. Um, but now we are seeing this change. Um, it hasn't actually been really utilized yet. But A lot of labs around the world are working on, as you say, AI um, to be able to essentially do it automatically, right? Like if you could at least get um, the computer to say, we think this is an animal and this is an animal and this is an animal and just pull out those bits, then you can at least go through and be like, ah, yes, that's this species of coral and that's this sponge rather than having to, you know, waft through all of these like weeks and weeks of video. But, you know, I think there are hopes that it's going to go beyond just being able to recognize animals to actually being able to recognize species. Um, but I mean, selfishly, though, I think one of the things I love about what I do is being able to sit and look at hours of footage. It's almost like you can just escape um, into this completely different world. When you go down there, do you feel sometimes as an intruder? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Um, because ultimately you are, right? Um, especially because we're going down there with noisy vehicles. We're going down there with blindingly bright vehicles. Um, and we are bringing elements that many of these deep sea animals will never ever have had to deal with and yes it's on a very small scale um so the impacts will not be great but um it certainly is something to consider 
Is there any chance for those creatures of the deep sea to see you as a person? Um, I think that in theory, some deep sea animals would be able to see humans in submersibles. But the problem with that is that our lights are so bright. I mean, think about if you'd spend your entire life in near complete darkness. And then suddenly you were faced with brilliant lights and you couldn't close your eyes, right? So it's likely that these lights are probably quite damaging. It's like if you look in the sun, right? So in a way, it's good that we have explored only this like 0.0001% of the seafloor. Certainly, yes. But I mean, it is on a very small scale that it's happened. But if it were to happen on a bigger scale, which is potentially what will happen with mining and other things, yes, that will be bad. History has shown that we are not responsible species. And this is now the time where... We need to be making decisions about this last unexplored frontier, right? The largest ecosystem on the planet, our planet's buffer system. As the deep sea is pretty far away from human settlements, from human activity, how big is the human impact on the deep sea? So I think that's one of the big misconceptions about the deep sea, is that it is far away and therefore not impacted, that it's a relatively pristine place. Um, and, you know, it varies. Um, ultimately, no part of the planet has been spared our touch, humans touch. Um, and the deep sea is no different. Um, you know, every single place that I've been lucky enough to explore and study in the deep sea we see evidence of us, even though no one may have been there before. Whether that is, you know, the Southern Ocean, the Mariana Trench, the Caribbean Deep Sea, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, I'm sure, I mean, compared to like shallow water coral reefs, they, they obviously have much less impacts, but it's still there. And we often don't realize that we've been using the deep sea for like actually extracting things from it or putting things into it for centuries. I mean, you know, for the last couple hundred years, um, things used to be dumped at sea purposefully, like started with, for instance, clinker, which was thrown off of ships. And then um, we moved into like throwing yeah, tr other types of trash off of ships. I mean, it's known now that there have been tons and tons and tons of pharmaceutical waste dumped into the Puerto Rico trench. There has been tons and tons and tons of chemical weapons dumped off of Hawaii. The deep sea was really thought of this place where you could just throw anything once upon a time and then we'd never see it again. We'd never have any of the impacts ever again. And now we've moved away from intentionally dumping in the deep sea and instead you get, you know, accidental pollution. So our trash washes out of rivers, it falls off of boats. And so you still end up with a lot of our trash getting into the deep sea. And then, of course, there's things like chemical pollution. So 
some animals in um, the world's deepest trenches have been found to have microplastics, so broken down plastics within their bodies. They've been found to have PCBs, so polychlorinated biphenols, which are a very harmful chemical. Um, yeah, they have extremely high levels in some trench-dwelling deep-sea animals, like higher than many of the most polluted places on the planet, for instance. And that's because the deep sea is kind of like this sink. It's like this final resting place for lots of stuff. And then it's not just things we've been putting into the sea, um, like physical things, um, but then there's also, you know, noise pollution is growing. We're using the ocean more and more, so we're seeing way more shipping happening. And that is resulting in lots of noise that could potentially be having impacts on deep sea species, but we just haven't even begun to understand that yet. And then there's other ways that we've impacted the deep sea. So for decades, we have been fishing it and not just, you know, throwing a line over the side that goes quite far down. No, like some of the most destructive ways possible that you can fish, which is deep sea bottom trawling, which is where you drag huge nets along the deep sea floor and it basically removes everything. It's like clear cutting an entire forest, right? Just to get, you know, a couple of fruit, for instance, is how it works. And as we talked about earlier, these ecosystems take a long time to recover. And so many places that were fished decades ago still haven't recovered. And many of the species that are being targeted for fishing, so orange roughy is a really well-known example, um, they're known to congregate above these mountains in the sea. And there were once upon a time big populations of them. Um, so, you know, before we even really knew what was down in the deep sea, we were already taking from it and we were already destroying it while taking from it. And now, you know, we also are seeing things like underwater cable laying. I mean, we're here chatting over the internet and it's like, well, how does that happen? That happens because of cables that stretch along the deep sea floor. And those will have an impact, sure, a small impact, but they still have an impact. There's oil and gas extraction. And when there are accidents like Deepwater Horizon, of course, there are impacts then. And now, because, of course, our technology is getting even better right? People are thinking about new ways to use the deep sea. And one of the big um, potential threats that's emerging is this idea of getting our minerals, our metals from the deep sea in the future, which means mining in the deep sea. And we know that mining on land is a very destructive process that has not had many checks and balances around it. it it really hasn't proved to be a very responsible industry and now there are plans to begin that in the deep sea as well i mean it will be absolutely devastating if that does happen before we get to deep sea mining how about uh, climate change oh i forgot climate change oh my god yes sorry <laughs> um And, you know, on top of all of these impacts, there is no part of the planet that has not um, experienced the impacts of climate change. It causes deoxygenation, so less oxygen in the water, and it causes acidification, so the water becoming more acidic. And 
this is already happening in the deep sea, just like it is already happening in the shallow waters, just like we're seeing it already happening, you know, for years on land. But what is really worrying about the deep sea is that many animals in the deep sea are called stenotherms. And that means that they can only live within a very small temperature range. But isn't the the warming of the deep sea much slower than of the atmosphere? Yeah, definitely. You know, comparatively, compared to shallow waters, compared to on land, it is buffered from these changes. But, you know, that buffering capacity of the ocean and of the deep sea that essentially is what allows all of us to live on the planet with these temperatures we are accustomed to calling normal, that buffering capacity will only go so far, right? Like everything has a limit. And so the ocean's ability to absorb the heat, to sequester carbon, that is limited. And um, yes, it may take a little longer for the impacts to be seen, but they are already being seen in the deep sea. Like we expect, just like in shallow waters, to see things like, you know, mass migrations of animals. Um, we expect to see population collapses. Another aspect of climate change is acidification. Yeah. You could argue that in the deep sea, bones are not so much of an issue. Mm -hmm. So it's less of a problem. Well, most of the life in the deep sea doesn't have the traditional bones we're thinking about. But actually, um, most corals and a lot of like snails and other gastropods, mollusks, they all still incorporate calcium carbonate into their skeletons. Um, and so while it's not traditionally bones, there are still skeletons in corals, there are still shells on snails and bivalves. And those will definitely be impacted by acidification in the future. And so, of course, then it makes the animals stressed and means that they're using more energy to maintain their skeletons or their shells instead of reproducing. And ultimately, it has impacts on how this entire ecosystem functions and um, potentially even is like held together. Okay, so let's talk about deep sea mining. <laughs> We're um... just going from one happy topic to another. <laughs> There is oil and gas extraction. Mm -hmm. Then there's also the extraction of methane hydrates, mm -hmm. but not yep. really in the deep sea, not yet, no? No, no. I don't think it's, it's into the deep sea much at all, but it is certainly something that many oil and gas companies are thinking about and making more moves to do in the future, for sure. How dangerous is that? The main issue with methane hydrate is that we know that methane is the worst greenhouse gas. And so there is this worry that by utilizing methane hydrate, which only forms um, under very specific um, conditions, there has to be really cool temperatures and really high pressures for the methane to become these crystals. And... By potentially exploiting that in the future, you're, you know, essentially releasing a bunch of methane into the atmosphere. And we all know that's really the opposite of what is needed right now. But then there's another issue with methane hydrate. And this is that similar to some oil and gas, a lot of it is found below the seafloor. 
And there's thoughts that when it's being extracted, um, it could actually lead to collapse, the seafloor collapsing in some places as they're removing, you know, a lot of the structure, if you will. And finally, there is deep sea mining, which is not really, you would think of uh, drilling into the seabed, but it's more a surface matter. Well, so there's three different types of deep sea mining. Um, so there's for these resources called polymetallic nodules, which are like cherry to potato sized lumps of metal that sit on the seafloor um, in sediment. And but then there's also polymetallic sulfides, which are found at hydrothermal vents that we were talking about earlier. And then there's also cobalt rich crusts, which are found on seamounts, so those mountains under the sea. And for the nodules, um, it is is not what we conventionally think about of mining on land, which is that like that full on digging, drilling, extraction, remove the seafloor. Um, whereas for the sulfides and the crusts, it's the same thing, that drilling, that excavation, that grinding up of rock. But, you know, to go back to the nodules, even though it's not what we conventionally know to be mining, to mine those nodules, will still destroy all of the habitat in the area. So even though it's not rock, it's actually sediment, which is easier to disturb That is where a lot of the life lives. And actually a lot of the life lives on the nodules, on the sulfides, on the crusts. And so by going through that mining process, um, you will have all of the life in the path of the mining vehicles or mining equipment being destroyed and many, many other impacts beyond that. These nodules, how were they created? I don't know what it is, but I just love thinking about this. It's the nodules have formed over millions and millions of years, and they form in a similar way to a pearl. So there'll be a grain of sand or a shark's tooth or something, and the metals slowly settle onto that grain of sand or that shark tooth or whatever it is at the core and over time more and more metals settle over it and settle over it and settle and, and accrete onto this and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and after I think the the consensus is that they tend to grow at about one to two millimeters per million years right so to get a nodule that's about the size of your fist you're talking about like hundreds of millions of years to form that And there's still a lot about that nodule formation process that isn't understood. Um, like, for instance, now we know that microbes play a role in the formation of nodules. But I think there's still a lot left to learn about what that role is. Um, another thing is that where these nodules are found is that they're all found sitting on the seafloor, at the surface of the seafloor. And... I mean, when you think about the fact that they've been sitting in that one place for tens of millions of years, if not more, how do they stay at the surface, right? Why don't they get buried up, buried over? 
What are the theories about the role of the microbes in their creation? Oh, that is, I, I honestly would not be able to tell you. I mean, it's thought that they play a role in, yeah, I'm not going to say because I'm just going to get it wrong and someone is going to listen to this and be like, Diva doesn't know what she's talking about. They live on the nodules. Yeah. And so they don't just live on the nodules, but they actually live within the nodules as well. And then there are microbes living on the seafloor right next, you know, that the nodules are sitting on. And then there are microbes, of course, in the water just above the nodule. Each of those different places has totally different microbes. The mining of nodules hasn't started yet, but it's very close. Mm -hmm. As I understand. So could you explain this a bit? Yeah. So the ocean tends to be split into two main ways of management. So countries that have a coast, they will own um, a certain amount of ocean and like around 200 nautical miles out from their coast normally. But then everything beyond that, it's the international international waters or the high seas or the area beyond national jurisdiction, or it's called the global commons as well. And because it belongs to no country, it also means it belongs to all countries. And that means it belongs to you, it belongs to me, it belongs to every person who is on the planet and every person who is yet to come onto the planet. And so in that area, the global commons, there's been an organization set up which is meant to manage all of the minerals in that area and it's called the international seabed authority and they um so far have leased 31 licenses for exploration as a precursor to mining in the future so as you said no exploitation has happened yet so no mining has happened yet but these 31 entities are allowed to go and explore these areas of the seafloor that they have been granted. And these are not small areas of the seafloor as well. Like some of them are around the size of Sri Lanka. And this organization, the International Seabed Authority, not only can they give out these contracts, but they also set all the rules around mining, all the regulations, all the laws and so on that really govern this entire process. And the International Seabed Authority is also interested in research before this happens? So these exploration licenses they've granted, they um, request that the contractors need to um, do research to understand what is there. But there's a lot of concern amongst scientists, amongst environmentalists, amongst NGOs, um, amongst, you know, local communities that there's like varying qualities of research being done. The other problem is that a lot of this research is not accessible to scientists. It's not accessible to the average person. And that's not okay, given that this is the global commons and this does belong to all of us. But then there's other bigger questions around You know, like we should all be compensated for the global commons, which we all own. We should all benefit from that mining, right? And that is something that hasn't been worked out yet. How do you share the proceeds from the mining activity in a way that is 
equal and not just equal amongst all the countries on earth, all the people on earth, um, but also equal so that all future generations are able to benefit as well. I mean, I don't think it is solvable, to be honest, to be fair on future generations. You have been involved in this research? So I was part of a team that did do some of the the baseline research for one of these companies from 2013 to 2016. And it was a company called UK Seabed Resources Limited, which is um, the UK's company that has a license out in one of these areas that has these nodules. And I did it through the University of Hawaii. And, you know, that research, we were the first scientists to ever go out to study that area of the seafloor. We found that for the large animals, which is what I work on, more than half of the animals were new to science. We found that more than half of the animals rely on the nodules, like corals, like sponges, anemones. They actually attach to the nodules themselves as an anchor. And, you know, other scientists who were working as part of that team yeah, have discovered that between 70 and 90% of other species are all new to science. I mean, this is an entire ecosystem that we just have so little understanding of. And during that time, as part of that research, that was when it really became very clear to me that, you know, deep sea mining is not something that we can proceed with responsibly in the near future. There's a lot that still needs to be reconciled before we should even be thinking about mining. But also, of course, there's this other concern that these are ecosystems that are so slow that it's almost certain that, no, it is certain that, for instance, the nodule areas in the places where mining does occur, it will take millions of years for it to recover. Do you think it could still be stopped? Um, I think there is a lot of money to be made. And so, unfortunately, it's easier for people to understand like monetary value than to understand other types of value, whether that is like cultural value or functional value or just the intrinsic value of biodiversity. But also I think, you know, not a lot of people know about the issue, right? Like most people just don't think about the deep sea. Why would they, right? And that means that this is proceeding largely without most of the world's population knowing. And that's, again, not okay, given that this is the global commons and it belongs to all of us. And, you know, one of the most concerning things that's happened recently is that Nauru, which is a tiny country in the Pacific, a small island developing state, has submitted their request to begin mining and two years from that submission date, they are allowed to begin mining, regardless of whether the regulations are in place to govern this activity, regardless of what we know and understand about these ecosystems, regardless of whether we deem it to be too environmentally irresponsible. I mean, all of these things, none of it basically will matter unless you can get consensus at the ISA that this should not Go forward. And so in a nutshell, within two years, this country, Nauru, through the Canadian mining company that they are affiliated with, they could be 
mining in the ocean without any of the checks and balances that are needed in place. This company is called Metals Company. Exactly, yes. And what is interesting about it or about its CEO is that they claim that it's not just about money, that it's actually about the environment. Yes, absolutely. So they're saying, of course, we're paying a price. We will interfere in the deep sea ecosystem. But on the other hand, we need these metals for green technology, exactly. for batteries. Yep. What do you think about that? I mean, I certainly think that we do need to transition to a more sustainable world, one in which we no longer use fossil fuels um, and one in which we consume less, each of us. But I think the claims by the metals company are disingenuous. The same CEO that you're referring to, he and many of the directors on the metals company's board They were previously part of another company called Nautilus, which had a contract with the Papua New Guinea government to mine within Papua New Guinea's waters. And they were planning to mine hydrothermal vents. So there's incredibly rare and very unique ecosystems we talked about earlier, where animals exist completely without the need for um, a sunlight-based ecosystem, right? Fast forward like several years. And Jared Barron, he got lots of investment into the company. He made a lot of money. I've heard on the grapevine that it was about 20 to 30 million dollars. Um, and he dumped his stocks and cashed out, as did many of the directors. Um, they made their money and they left without doing any mining. And then as plans proceeded in this company, it turns out that the company actually then went bankrupt. And when it went bankrupt, it left the Papua New Guinea government in huge debt. So more than 200 million Australian dollars, the Papua New Guinea government lost. And so now they've set up this other company, the metals company, which was initially called Deep Green. And it's no longer that they want to mine the vents now they want to mine nodules and they've created this entire narrative around this mining to be good for the planet and ultimately i just think that's false you cannot be destroying huge swaths of the planet and call it good for the planet right and i think also the part that bothers me the most is that they consistently downplay the science. So you'll hear them say, oh, we're just going to harvest the nodules, right? It's a very light touch to pick up the nodules and so on. Um, when it's not, like they will destroy everything in the path of that vehicle. And they always say that there's not a lot of life down there. Or if there's life down there, it's very small and inconsequential. And actually, no, from the work that we were doing out there, we're finding that it's one of the most biodiverse places in the ocean. And then I think there's also a lot of concerns around their relationships with the developing countries that they have partnered with. So Nauru and Tonga and Kiribati, um, you know, about how equal those relationships are and whether it is just sort of a, a neocolonial type arrangement. The interesting thing with the CEO 
Baron is that, I mean, his background is, I think, advertisement. Exactly, uh, yes. And you can tell because he's turning it upside down. So instead of saying, oh, these like small states, they give us the license for little money. Yep. Uh, he says, oh, yeah, you see, these are island states in the South Pacific and they are really affected by sea level rise. Yep. And these countries are completely innocent. They didn't cause the sea level rise and still have to suffer from it. Well, now, thanks to us taking the nodules, helping and making green technology, battery technology cheaper and more available, we will actually help stopping uh, sea level rise and help these countries. The climate crisis is becoming so concerning um, and the need for action that I think we're you know, humankind is going to begin to see more of this type of behavior. It's essentially greenwashing. And we're going to see more and more companies that are essentially seeking to profit from this. And as you say, he's in PR, he's in advertising. He is very good at, at marketing this company in a way that I think appeals to people. And they are soon going public via something called a SPAC. And this will mean that there could be a huge injection of investment. And I mean, he stands to make hundreds of millions from this, potentially. And this is directly linked, many people think, to Nauru pulling this two-year rule. But what could be done? So I think with deep seabed mining, again, like there is certainly this issue that so few people think about the deep sea, so few people are aware of the way it works or what lives there. And that is a huge problem for pressure to be put on governments from the ground up, from the average person to, to cause the government to change, as we're seeing happening with plastic, for instance. But, you know, I think there are a lot of really great groups raising their concerns, especially, for instance, in the Pacific, a lot of indigenous Pacific organizations and communities have banded together and are really raising their voices against this issue because so much of it is based in the Pacific Ocean. And of course, many of them are so intricately connected to the ocean, whether it's their food source or their source of a livelihood or just you know where they think their ancestors go to, to rest, for instance. But as we've seen with so many issues globally, you know, often those who are not well represented or who are underrepresented, their voices are not heard loud enough. And unfortunately, given the way the ISA works, I mean, we see at these meetings that happen twice a year normally, many countries can't even afford to attend. And so what that means is that most of the countries that do attend are actually those that have a stake in mining. And so you've got like private entities, private entities who stand to make potentially billions off of this. They're whispering in their country's ears to negotiate on their behalf. And then on top of that, you know, you have a real lack of the average person being able to participate in these discussions. You certainly don't get any of the underrepresented groups, whether it is indigenous people or the youth. TBA 21 Academy has been present. Yes. So it's actually possible to attend those meetings and as well to get a bit of time where you can speak or perform. 
Yes, I think they are also the first art organization to have official observer status at the ISA. Um, and so that means they are able to attend any of these meetings that happen twice a year in Jamaica. And now more than ever, it is key that they continue to do so and all the other observer organizations. What you say is is not weighted as important as what a country might say, for instance. But at least being in the room does allow you to speak with countries. It does allow you to say things publicly to everyone who is in the room um, and so on. Have you been present? Oh, those? yeah, I've attended since 2018. Um, I've been to every single session. And it's certainly you can feel the tension growing and you can feel how much the discussions are accelerating or trying to accelerate. And that was before this two year rule was pulled um, since pre-COVID. Um, the last one was February 2020. There could as well be a chance in figures like this uh, Baron. He is like a typical creative disruptor, like an Elon Musk or... Yes, exactly. Like an adventurer guy, yep. which can be very charismatic, but which makes Absolutely. him also very vulnerable. There's more to attack. You could think that such a persona is as well provoking many people. It's easier than when you just have a multinational corporation with some, you know, grayish CEOs. It's interesting you raise that because... He has created this entire sort of persona, right? Exactly as you describe. Um, and exactly what you would sort of expect of someone who wants to like save the world, if you will, in inverted commas. But at these multilateral meetings or these intergovernmental meetings, you know, there is a dress code. Most people will attend in suits or business attire um, because at the end of the day, you know, these are governments and their representatives making decisions. And Without fail, every single time he attends, he wears his same, like, explorer dude jacket and has his, like, hippie bracelets on or whatever and, like, a t-shirt, you know. I think de most delegates were pretty surprised by that. I think many of them may have thought it was inappropriate. And then on one occasion, Nauru gave him the floor. And so he was able to publicly speak to everybody in the room. Um, and he did so for, um, for like 15 minutes. And, you know, the room was in shock. And so it's, you know, I think that word that you use to describe him, a disruptor, is very appropriate. Because that is what I think he's trying to do effectively, but really to benefit from that. And so while, yes, I do think there's something there to sort of chip away at, um, I think it also has the opposite effect. I mean, you read a lot of the press that he's featured in and he'll be described as like good looking or they'll comment on the way he's dressed. And I think he's been very smart in that he's created this sort of like celebrity persona for himself, like Elon Musk, like all these people. Um, and I think a lot of people just buy it. A lot of the delegates buy it. A lot of the press buys it. Yeah. So what can you do about it? You said raise awareness for the deep sea. How would that really work? Yeah. I and mean, how do you uh, increase the affection for alien creatures that they <laughs> only know from some images? For <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is a question that I think about literally every day. 
And, you know, I think there's a lot of awareness raising on many different levels that needs to happen and it needs to happen fast. I think one of the things that does give me hope, though, is that I feel like we're coming to this place globally where we're recognizing the need to change the way we do things. Um, We're seeing it happening with the climate crisis and oil and gas companies, right? Like major court cases lost and so on. And I think and I hope that there is greater emphasis being placed on the planet. And there are a lot of really great examples that show that humanity can turn it around. For instance, whaling, right? I mean, just 50 years ago, whaling was legal. There were tens of thousands of whales being killed every year. And, you know, fast forward now, there's a moratorium on whaling. And I think, you know, fast forward 50 years from now, and I would like to think that we'll be in a better place by then again, where our knowledge of the deep sea is completely transformed. Well, think of whaling. Mm -hmm. Um, Whales are the largest animals. They are mammals. They come up out of the surface. You can spot them Mm -hmm. from the beach. Hunting whales has been described, I mean, in Moby Dick. Mm -hmm. So I think one has to be really creative in how to raise this kind of compassion for the creatures of the deep sea. Definitely. Or even for the minerals of the deep sea or for the microbes of the deep sea. Yeah, exactly. How do you do that? There are two things that need to be done. We need to relate this back to us because ultimately we are a selfish species and we need to show that mining, if it does happen, will impact us in X, Y, Z ways. But I also think, you know, people can become endeared to animals, as you just described with whales. And I mean, sure, we don't have iconic literature like Moby Dick, but we do have various documentaries about the deep sea. And slowly the deep sea is gathering momentum in our literature, in on our TVs, in our art. But also, I think we need to recognize the cultural value that already exists in the deep sea, like for Pacific cultures and their connections to the deep sea. There's a lot that we just don't value it as highly as it should be valued. But I think, you know, a lot of this sits in that larger discussion of around capitalism and how like success and production is measured, basically, Um, like those metrics need to change. You mentioned capitalism, so people don't even manage to stop their own exploitation. Why should they stop the exploitation of the deep sea? But then I was just thinking that this could as well be the approach. I mean, the advantage of the deep sea is that it is so alien. And I was just thinking of the movie E.T. That was one of my favorites when I was growing up. Uh-huh. Yes, and people were able to develop this immense compassion for this creature. Uh, it's very wrinkled. Yeah. It has <laughs> Brown, this, like, yeah. no hair. It's this very small body. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and still, people have been able to develop so much affection for E.T. So I have this image of a movie like where on the one side there's like Baron, the evil guy yeah, <laughs> on the surface, looks like... Uh, <laughs> good but of course it's really evil (laughs) and then you have all these like amazingly strange alien creatures that are already beyond the uncanny valley they're so strange but that's true of the deep sea life isn't it 
I mean, that is what it is. And it just is about like, for instance, I was part of a research cruise where we were working in and around the Mariana Trench and we were able to stream all of our exploration um, of the deep sea live on the internet. And we were joined by like 1.4 million people during that exploration. And I think, you know, people do have this fascination with the deep sea. Before you even get into deep sea animals, people do have this fascination with the unknown, with exploration, with just how much there is to discover. And then, of course, when you start to introduce, as you say, like these alien life forms that are unlike you know, anything we see in other parts of the planet from glowing sharks to hairy white crabs to thousand year old coral forests. It just elevates it to a whole nother level. And then on top of that, when you think about the fact that there is this growing awareness of the need to protect places, especially places that are as close to pristine as possible, places that are what we can call true wilderness, and there are very few of those places left on the planet, but there are a lot of them left in the deep sea. Recently, I've been checking for ocean memes, the internet. <laughs> right. There's some, but not many and not many good ones. Very few. <laughs> and I didn't find any that involved creatures of the deep sea. Ooh, I think you're on to something. Should we start doing deep sea memes? I think so. I mean, even this, like, you mentioned the hairy crab, the Hoff crab, no? The, like, yeah. named after David Hasselhoff. Yes, exactly. Uh, then you have these giant tube worms, the Yeti crab. Um, there's this super cute little squid with this gigantic eyes. Oh, yeah, I know the one you mean. <laughs> the purple one, yeah. Stubby squid. Exactly, yes, the stubby squid. Stubby squid, yeah. mm. Um, and, and that's the thing is that, like we were talking about earlier, you know, with the, the opportunity to just sit and observe in the deep sea, that we don't get that. This is what we're now beginning to untangle from the deep sea, is these stories that we are so accustomed and know so well from on land. Like we know about the migrations of wildebeest um, in Tanzania, and we know about the whale migrations off the Pacific coast and, you know, all of these like really monumental natural events that we know about on land. Um, and yeah, the first part of that is just getting that info out there. But I think you've raised a really valid example that, you know, our ways of communicating about the deep sea, there's so much potential and potential beyond TV, beyond literature, beyond art. Like we need, why not just, yeah, memes. This was the ninth episode of Ocean Wants, featuring Diva Amen. Ocean Wants is a podcast series commissioned and produced by TVA 21 Academy. Conceived, hosted, and edited by Ingo Nierman. Music composed and arranged by Villa Haimala. Intro read by Joan Jonas. Credits read by Stacey Boucher. Sound edited by Robin Michel. Produced by Ingo Nierman and Maria Montero Sierra. Hear more episodes at ocean archive.org, dertunk.ch, 
or subscribe with your podcast provider.